You may be seated. <clears throat> As I've already said, that today is the, the second Sunday in Advent, and we're going to be spending the, the three remaining Sundays of Advent leading up to Christmas in Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so please open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. This is the very first passage in the New Testament, and as soon as you open up to Matthew chapter 1, you'll notice that it is a, a very long list of names. There's 42 names in this, in this list, and it's, it's Jesus' genealogy, his family tree, and I'm, I'm not making any, any accusations, but, um, but I seem to, to get some head nods in the earlier service, that I, so I think this is true, that, that it's, it's a, I think a safe bet that that at least some of us, when we come to a list of names like this, so the first part of Matthew 1, we, you know, we just skip forward a little bit and uh, skip, skip to the story, skip to, to, to the birth of Christ. However, we're not skipping today. We're going to move all the way through these, these names. I'm going to, going to tell you uh, one story by way of illustration as, as to why this, we should do that, why this, this genealogy of Jesus is worth our attention and this is a true story from a Wycliffe Bible um, translator newsletter about 20 years ago. And this, this translator was, or a team of translators were doing work in Papua New Guinea. And they started, uh, after, well, after about a decade of, of getting to know this, this tribe and their language and their people, they began to translate the New Testament. So they started with Matthew. And, but they were concerned about starting with this genealogy. They were worried about you know, bogging down and, 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 and the people losing interest as they began to read uh, Matthew's gospel account if they started with the genealogy. And so they thought, well, let's, we want to start, we'll start with verse 18. We'll start with the narrative section, with the story. We'll, we'll get into the, the meat and the substance of the story of Christ. So they started translating in the second half of Matthew 1, and they went all the way through verse 28, chapter 28, the whole book, and they, they sent the manuscript off to the publisher and then months later, the printed copies, um, minus that first part of chapter 1, arrived. But then they were greatly disappointed because the people in the tribe were so much more interested in the delivery trucks than they ever were the, the, the copy of Matthew's gospel that was presented to them. And the translators really were, I mean, they were in dismay. They were crushed. Uh, they've been working for a decade. The people just appeared to not care about the gospel story. But they stayed at it, and they decided, and for the second edition, they would translate the, they add the genealogy in, translate the whole um, of Matthew's gospel. And the day came when the second edition was delivered, and they gathered some of the men from the tribe who they had worked the closest with, and they gathered these men together, and they started reading the genealogy. You know, and they were going through, you know, Abraham beget Isaac, Isaac beget Jacob, Jacob beget, you know, and they was going on and on. And they got through about five or six of these begats, and then they, could, they noticed that the men in the tribe were, were excited. They were getting excited. They were more excited than they had been during the, their, their time of ministering to them. And all of a sudden, these, these men asked them, wait a second. Is this a true story? Do, do you mean that, that these were real men? The translator said, yes, yeah, these are real men. And the men from the tribe said, well, well this is what we do referring to their custom of keeping track of genealogies. They said, we, we had thought that these were just you know, white men's stories. I mean, do you really mean that Abraham was a real man? And they said, yes. That's what we've been trying to tell you. He said, well, we, we didn't know that. We thought you were telling us uh, you know, this, this, 
made-up story about this mythical character. But, but now we believe. And that night they gathered the, the whole village together and the chief and many of the members of the tribe came to faith in Christ. And I tell you that story because, you see, the, the events that follow this genealogy, the, the virgin who was with child by the agency of the Holy Spirit, the, the visit from the angel and the declaration that the virgin will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then his life and his ministry, his preaching and teaching, his healings, his miracles, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, all of the, these the events that follow in the life and the ministry of Christ only make sense if we understand this is a true story and we understand who Jesus really is. See, Christmas only makes sense if we understand this is a true story and we understand who Jesus really is. Or as that Christmas carol goes, what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthem sweet while shepherds watch or keeping. You know, what child is this? Who, who is this Jesus? Well, in many ways, who is this Jesus? That's the question that, that Matthew chapter 1 is, is answering for us. Now, this genealogy, it's not comprehensive or exhaustive. You know, every descendant in the family tree is not listed. But it, it is a genealogy with a purpose, with intentionality. It's intentionally arranged in three groups of 14 names. The first group of 14 names go from Abraham to David. The second group of 14 names go from King David to the Babylonian exile. The third group of 14 names go from the Babylonian exile to the birth of Christ. And so with that said, hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll begin reading Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, and Abihud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. 
So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love for our good. So we're going to look at this genealogy under three headings. We're going to look at the introduction, which is in verse 1. We're going to look at the names verses 2 to verse 16. And then we're going to ask ourselves, okay, what are the lessons that we are to draw from this? So the introduction, the names, and the lessons. So first, introduction. Look with me at this opening phrase of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now that Greek word translated genealogy is the word genesis. Matthew is signaling a genesis, a, a new beginning. As I'm sure that most of you know that the The first book of the Old Testament is the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. Well, Matthew 1 is a new beginning with the coming of Christ, the coming of the pre-existent Christ, the, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, taking on human flesh and dwelling among us as our Savior. So you see, the whole Old Testament was preparation for the coming of Christ, Preparation for the coming of Jesus, the the second Adam who succeeded where the first Adam failed, who will one day undo all the effects of Adam's fall, and Jesus will ultimately bring about a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. As we sang earlier in this service, no more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns invest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So we see in that opening phrase, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah, which means anointed one. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. This Christ was a long-awaited anointed king whom God had promised to send to save his people from their sin. And so who is Jesus? Well, he is the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. But then Matthew goes on and says, not only is he the Christ, but he is the son of David. That, Jesus, that Matthew makes this you know, unmistakable connection between David, King David, and Christ. Makes it very clear that, that Christ is, is a descendant of David, in the line of David, a son of David. Right? One of the first things that we read about Jesus in the New Testament. Okay? And so, so why does that matter? Why does it matter that Jesus is the son of David. It's because of God's big promises that we find throughout the Old Testament. And and one of the clearest places that we see this this promise of a forever king coming in the line of David is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So let me read verses 12 to 16. This promise from God to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body... And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. So in this big promise from God to David, there are certainly near-term promises that, that involve David's son Solomon. And Solomon would, would build the temple. 
But ultimately, the 2 Samuel 7 promise is about the future Messiah king in the line of David who would come, and he would be God's forever king over his people. He would be the king to save his people from their sin and to ultimately restore the world marred by sin. And ultimately, this is a promise about Jesus. And Matthew is making this clear. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. But then verse 1 goes on, and it says, not just the book of the genealogy, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. So there's this connection between Christ and Abraham. See, once again, reminding us of these big promises of God throughout the Old Testament. See, even earlier than God's promise to David, God made a big promise to Abraham. We read about this in, in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, in your descendants, in your offspring, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And this promise is is repeated and uh, reaffirmed um, throughout the book of Genesis. For example, in Genesis 17, verses 5 and 6, we read, No longer shall your name be called Abram. But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So we see, so the promise to David was a promise of a forever king. This promise to Abraham was that the kings would come from him. So let's think about this, okay? This, this promise from God to Abraham is, is so huge for at least a couple of reasons. First, Abraham was 99 years old whenever God was making this promise, and he and his bride were barren. They had been unable to have children. He's 99 years old. I'm not saying that's old, but, but that's old, okay? And obviously, this promise to make this 99-year-old man into the father of a multitude of nations, it would begin with a single child, a single son of promise. But it would but this have to be a, a miraculous birth, a miraculous child that God would bring about. That God would have to do this. Second, notice that the promise is that all the families of the earth shall be blessed through Abraham's descendant. And notice that kings will come from Abraham. So when you look back to Matthew 1.1 and the way that he begins this gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, we see that God's promise to David and to Abraham were ultimately promises about the same person. That one person is Jesus Christ, the son of God, the son of David, the son of Abraham, which Matthew makes very clear in this introduction to Jesus' genealogy here in verse 1. So that's the introduction. Now we have a lot of names. We've got three groups of 14 names. We've got 42 names, and so let's look at them. Look at them quickly. And, but well, before we do, look at verse 17. Verse 17 gives us an overview Um, an outline of what we're going to see. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Put another way, Matthew's giving us about 2,000 years of Bible history in these 16 verses. And we're going to see that we recognize some of these names. And some of these names are more important than others. And some of these names we don't know anything about. For some of them, we only know about them because they're in this genealogy in in Matthew 1. 
And so I want us to move quickly through these three groups of 14 names. And I want us to be reminded, though, okay, who do we find in this family tree? And so look at verse 2. And in verse 2, we see the patriarchs listed. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now, we've already talked about Abraham, the one through whom God's promised blessing would come to all the families of the earth. And then we see Isaac, Abraham's miracle boy, this miracle baby boy, this child of promise. And then we have Jacob. You may remember that Jacob deceived his twin brother Esau and took his birthright. And Jacob had 12 sons, and we notice that Matthew highlights only one, Judah. And so why does he do that? Well, Judah was chosen to produce the royal line, that the kings would come through Judah. And we see this in, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Okay, then after verse 2, we have this, this really first section from verse 3 to verse 6. And we see it beginning with Judah's twin sons, Perez and Zerah, by Tamar mentioned. Tamar is the first of four women mentioned in this section of Jesus' genealogy. See, the other four women, we've got Tamar, then we've got the others. We have uh, Rahab and Ruth. Then we have the wife of Uriah, who we know to be Bathsheba. And if you look at this list, we, we actually know a lot more about these women than we do the men in verses 3 to 6. And we know very little about Hezron, Ram, Abinadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, other than you know, what we read about him in the book of Ruth, Obed, Jesse, the father of David, the king. But before we move on to the second group of 14 names, let's spend just a few minutes thinking about these four women. These four women who stand out to many of us, we know a lot about them. And if we know their stories, we know these four women are recipients of God's amazing grace for sinners and for outsiders. So let's think about them. First, Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. And her, her first husband was a wicked man, and he died. And then Judah gave her his um, second son. And he was also a wicked man, and he died. And then Judah said, okay, I see a pattern here, and so I'm not giving another son to this, to this woman, and so she, which was what he was supposed to do. So that left her vulnerable, left her unprovided for, uncared for, and so then she sinfully disguised herself as a prostitute, and Judah slept with her, and from that incest were born her these two sons. You can read about that sad story in Genesis 38, a very tragic story, very sad story. And then there's Rahab. Rahab was the prostitute from Jericho who helped Israel spies in the book of Joshua. Then we have Ruth, the, the Moabitess, who was adopted into Boaz's family in the book of Ruth. Then we have Bathsheba, uh, the wife of Uriah, who committed adultery with King David while she was still the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so think about these four women. Think about how remarkable, how really you know, incredible it is that these women are in this family tree. I mean, it was very unusual for women to be included in genealogies in the ancient world. But even more than that, think about these women, that, that all of them were either guilty of gross sexual sin or, or they, were, they were pagans. And most of them were both. And yet God extended his grace to them. He brought them into his covenant family, his covenant people, and he used them to ultimately bring about the promised Messiah King. Then we see in verses 6 to 11, we have the second group of 14 names. And, and this second group uh, is, is of kings in the line of David. Now, about half of these kings were, were men who loved God and who were looking 
forward to the, the coming of the Messiah King and, and faithful men, you know, men like David and Jehoshaphat and, and Hezekiah and Uzziah and Josiah, I mean, especially Josiah, you know, you can read in 2 Kings 22 and 23 about his many reforms and how he uh, restored your know, biblical, faithful biblical worship in Israel. And yet even some of these kings committed great and grievous sins. Right? We all know about David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband Uriah. Jehoshaphat was a king who at times displayed great faith in God's steadfast love, great faith in God's faithfulness to his covenant promises, but then at other times he knowingly made partnerships and compromises with very wicked men. Hezekiah was a king who at times was exceedingly faithful, then at other times he gave in to sinful pride. Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord for many years, but then he grew proud and he usurped the role of a priest and sinfully burned incense in the Lord's temple. And then the other half of the kings in verses 7 to 11 were tragically and truly very wicked men. I mean, Ahaz was given to pagan idol worship. Um, he even practiced human sacrifice, including burning his own son as an offering. He eventually plundered the gold and silver from the temple and, and gave it to the king of Assyria. He even went further and defiled the Lord's altar and built pagan altars in the temple. Rehoboam and Jeconiah were almost as wicked as Ahaz. And then you have Manasseh, who appears to be the worst of all. We, we read in 2 Kings 21.9, but they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done. Okay, that, that's a lot of evil. More evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So, so the wickedness of these kings led the people of God into greater and greater sin and greater and greater idolatry and unfaithfulness, and eventually led to the destruction of Jerusalem, and the loss of the promised land, and exile to Babylon. And so at this point, uh, we can see, as one pastor put it, all in all, this is one crooked family tree. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't know about you, it looks a lot like my family tree. Then we come to the third and final group of 14 names in verses 12 to 16. And you can read about Zerubbabel in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah because he was a leader um, used by God to, to rebuild the temple and reestablish faithful worship in Jerusalem after the people of God returned from exile. However, most of the men in verses 12 to 16 are virtually unknown to us apart from Matthew chapter 1. It's a list of obscure people. And yet it's the line of the house of David. Think about that. It's, it's the line of the house of David, and at this point, it's now, it's, it's, it's in obs obscurity. Sinclair Ferguson says, this genealogy essentially traces the origin, rise, and fall of the house of David. I mean, so do you see where the royal bloodline of the house of David is around the year AD 1? Do you see where it is? It, it's in the young, poor, obscure carpenter Joseph. It's in the obscure little town of Bethlehem. It's in the manger in the back of the inn. As John MacArthur says, it's a period shrouded largely in darkness and characterized largely by inconsequence. Okay, so we've looked at this introduction and these names. So what lessons are we to draw from this genealogy? What are we to learn from this? 
Well, as a way of transition, here's a quote from one of my friends, David Strain. He says, the baby who was born of the virgin in Bethlehem is the child both of promises and princes. The child of promises and princes is also the child of prostitutes and pagans. And he is the child of preservation and providence. So what lessons are we to learn from this? I want to highlight three. The first is this. God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. I mean, in many ways, this genealogy is essentially a summary of the Old Testament, including God's big promises to Abraham and to David. And God keeps his promises. God promised that all the families of the earth shall be blessed through Abraham's descendants and that kings would come from Abraham. And we see that's exactly what God does. God keeps his promises. He always does. And and, and if you're familiar with the story of Abraham from Genesis 12 to to 24, then then you know that almost all of the story of Abraham and his bride, Sarah, is is really a story of, of doubt and lack of faith. And not trusting that God is going to always keep his promises. And so they keep trying, they try to make these promises come about by their own efforts, by their own schemes, by their own hands. And yet Abraham's lack of faith and his failures do not and cannot thwart the promises of God. That God promised David there would be a future Messiah king in the line of David who would be God's forever king over his people. And yet David's failures and David's sins could not and would not thwart God's promises. You know, the, the many wicked kings who would follow David and who, and who led the kingdom into ruin could not and would not thwart God's promises and purposes for his people. You see, God sometimes seems slow to keep his promises from our perspective. Sometimes God seems slow to keep his promises from our perspective. But he always keeps his promises. We need to remember that. See, this genealogy tells us plainly that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Savior, God's forever king in the line of David, the Messiah promised Abraham long ago. And of course, Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who took on flesh and dwelt among us at that first Christmas to save us. And so to revisit a quote from earlier, The baby who was born of the virgin in Bethlehem was not merely the child of promises and princes. Wasn't merely the child of prostitutes and pagans. Not merely the child of providence and preservation. But most stunningly, the baby born of the virgin in the manger is the preexistent son of God. The promised son that God sent in the fullness of time. He he seems slow about answering his promises about remembering his promises. But he's never slow. He's never late. Listen to how Paul puts it in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, God always keeps his promises. And I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but I imagine in a, in a room this size that, that some of us, we need to hear this. We need to be reminded that God does always keep his promises. We need to be encouraged to, to not give up trusting them, to not give up memorizing them and hiding them in our hearts and, and teaching them to our children and to our grandchildren, reminding one another of them. God always keeps his promises. So do not give up trusting them, praying them, Resting in them, 
Don't give up, don't give up praying to God, asking him to move and work in, in your life and the lives of those around you. God always keeps his promises. The second lesson, and it's similar to the first, but a little bit different. There's no sin or failure or past that can stop or derail or frustrate God's purposes for us or God's purposes for you. Now, there is an insulin pump that can derail the sermon, and if it makes noise, okay, there we go. I'm perfectly fine. It's just every once in a while. There's too many of you in here, and you got too many cell phones and, you know, and the QR codes, and it starts, this, you know, it messes everything up. Okay, so... No sin or failure or past that can stop or derail or frustrate God's purposes for us. And we've talked about Abraham and David's failures. We've looked at the wicked kings. We've discussed the women who were a combination of sinners and pagans. And think about this. Yet their, their sins could not, would not, did not stop or derail or frustrate God's saving purposes in redemptive history. That God still extended grace to Abraham and to David and these women. God still used them in remarkable ways. I mean, after reading the, the names in this genealogy, isn't it obvious that, you know, that Jesus didn't come to, to praise his forebearers, but he came to save them? Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us and lived the, the sinless, righteous life and died the atoning death on Calvary's cross and rode victoriously from the grave on that first Easter morning to save his people, to save his own family from their sins. To save us from our sins. Sinclair Ferguson says, while God does not treat sin lightly, while he does not treat sin lightly, he's not paralyzed by my past sin. There's more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in my heart. Do you believe that? I hope you believe that. I hope you believe that this Sunday. I hope you believe that this, this Advent, this Christmas. You know, as Paul wrote at the end of Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, God, I mean, God, God does not treat sin lightly. Okay, we need to know that, I mean, sin, sin only brings forth death. Sin is ruinous. You know, as you heard me say before, I mean, sin never, ever, ever takes you where you want to go. Sin always makes things worse. Sin makes promises, never delivers. Sin makes deals with you, but it always costs way more than what you expected to pay. That no relationship is ultimately ever bettered because of sin. No friendship, no marriage, no, no, no parent-child relationship, no friendship is never ultimately bettered because of sin. Sin's never worth it. It only brings forth death and ruin. God never takes sin lightly. Friends, you should never take sin lightly. You should never merely try to manage your sin. You should never think, okay, well, I can take it out. No one will know, and I can play with it. I can play with it and just put it back. Nobody will know. You, you can't control it. You can't manage it. Before long, you will realize it's, it's controlling you. It's managing you. You thought you were going to pet it and play with it. Now it's petting you and playing with you. Don't take your sin lightly. Confess it. Repent of it. Turn away from it. Put it to death. 
Turn away from it. There's no life in it. And yet, always also believe that there, that there is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in your heart. I mean, that's why our time of confession every Sunday always ends with an assurance of pardon and comfort. So ultimately, as you're confessing sin and you're fighting against sin in your heart and you're seeking to put it to death, always end up there with this assurance of God's pardon and comfort and his grace. Remember what, we, what Patrick shared with us this morning, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The third lesson. Matthew's genealogy is good news. It's good news for everyone and anyone who needs a new beginning. Remember how it begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Genealogy, Genesis. Matthew's signaling a new beginning. And remember that last verse, verse 17, this, this overview of, of all that we see here. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Remember, Matthew's not giving us a, an exhaustive, comprehensive list of names. In fact, the, 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 um, the same is true of Luke's genealogy in Luke chapter 3. It's a slightly different genealogy than what we see here in Matthew 1. See, both of those genealogies are selective, intentional, purposeful. So, so what, what, is, what is Matthew's purpose? Okay, well, Matthew gives us three groups of 14 names. Three groups of 14 names. And you may know in the Bible that the, the number seven is often significant. It often symbolizes God and his work in the world. And so I think it is helpful and fair for us to think about these three groups of 14 names as six generations of seven names leading to Christ and the beginning of a new seventh generation, a new generation of spiritual children through faith in Christ, a new beginning, becoming children of God, not, not because we've decided to clean our lives up, to clean our act up, not because we've decided, okay, I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to stop doing bad things and start doing good things, not because I'm going to try really hard to have my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I'm going to make a list of resolutions. I'm going to turn over a new leaf, but rather because I'm trusting and resting in Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection and all that he has accomplished for me. Remember how John introduces Jesus to us in John 1, verses 9 to 13. Speaking of Christ, the true light, he says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How does one become a child of God? How is one adopted into his family? We receive Christ. We rest in the finished work of Christ. We say, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I believe that, that this, Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17, this is a true story. This is a true story telling, us, telling me who Jesus is. His identity He's the Son of God. He's the Savior. He's a long-awaited Savior. He's the Savior I need. 
That's why he lived. That's why he shed his blood on the cross. That's why he rose from the grave. See, do you, do you need a new beginning today? Do you need a new beginning this Sunday, this Advent? Trust in Christ. Receive him by faith. Rest in him. That there is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in your heart. You come to him by faith. You cry out to him in prayer, and he will forgive you. He'll save you. He'll wash you clean in his blood. He'll, he'll clothe you in his righteousness. That God will adopt you into his family. He'll give you a new heart. You'll be born again, made a new creation. He'll put his Holy Spirit within you and enable you to walk in newness of life. See, the good news of Christmas is the baby who was born of the virgin in Bethlehem is the child both of promises and princes, the child of prostitutes and pagans, the child of preservation and providence. You see, God always keeps his promises. And there's no sin or failure or part of your past that can stop or derail or frustrate God's purposes for you. And this is all good news for anyone and everyone who needs a new beginning. And this table before us reminds us of these truths. And this table before us spiritually nourishes us and encourages us to walk and to live in light of these truths. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you, you always keep your promises. We thank you for this genealogy and the lessons that we can learn from those names in it. We thank you for Christ, your son, whom you sent in the fullness of time to save us, to redeem us, to sanctify us. Father, hear our silent prayers now as we prepare our hearts to come to this table.